be seated and for those of you that are utilizing our children's ministry we run that through the first grade you're more than welcome to take your children back there now uh, we have been working through just paragraph by paragraph our confession of faith the london confession of faith and we've been looking at uh, the last couple of weeks chapter nine um, and it, that as it relates to the will of man and this morning we come to paragraph number three that says this humanity by falling into a state of sin has completely lost all ability to choose any spiritual good that accompanies salvation thus people in their natural state are absolutely opposed to spiritual good and are dead in sin so that they cannot convert themselves by their own strength or prepare themselves for conversion. So we need outside help, and that outside help has come in Christ Jesus. Amen? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. And we're going to look at this morning verses 42 through the end of the chapter. And Lord willing, we're going to spend two weeks here because there's much for us to consider on what is an often, it's not a subject we want to give a lot of thought to or attention to, but allow me to read for us, starting with verse 49. Then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. The title of this sermon, the title of the sermon for the next two weeks is, What Can Hell Teach Us About God and Ourselves? What Can Hell Teach Us About God and Ourselves? So the word of the Lord says this, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where, quote, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 45, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where, quote, their worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where, quote, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace with one another. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for God, another opportunity that we have to open your word and to read it have confidence that you inspired it. We thank you that it's able to make us wise for salvation. And Lord, I pray that as we 
contemplate the doctrine of hell this morning. God, I pray that you, you would help me to be honest and truthful and not go beyond what your word says about the subject. God, I pray that as Christians we would be motivated to herald the good news of the gospel, Lord. I pray for those that are sitting here that aren't Christians, that don't know you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would use this topic, use this doctrine to make them uncomfortable to the point of repentance and faith. I pray that you would save them, Lord. So, Lord, we look to you, our only hope, and we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who took our wrath as Christians on himself. So our hope is in Christ alone. Help us to remember Christ as we work through this passage. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The late R.C. Sproul was once asked what doctrine he struggled with the most. And his answer was the doctrine of, of hell. That, that, that was out of all of Scripture. That was the particular doctrine that he struggled with most. And if we're honest, uh, and, and hopefully we'll see this as we go through our text together, this is, a, this is a hard passage. This is a hard passage of Scripture. We see evidence, in fact, that it's hard um, in that it's a teaching of Jesus that is often um, neglected by people. It's a, it's a teaching that, that people want to neglect or pretend that he didn't teach, right? It's his teaching, as we're going to think through this morning, it's his teaching on hell. In fact, almost all of the Bible's teaching about hell comes from Jesus. Almost all of the Bible's teaching on hell comes from Jesus. He even talked about hell more than he did about heaven, in fact. Right? And this makes us uncomfortable. It perhaps should make us uncomfortable. There's those that I think want to read a divide between, the sharp divide between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They want to read a divide between God the Father and God the Son. They think of the Old Testament in terms of divine wrath and judgment, and they think of the New Testament in terms of grace and mercy. But the reality is this. The Father and the Son, along with the Holy Spirit of God, are the same essence. In other words, the Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is not divided. Right? The Godhead is not divided. Our God who judged the nations in the Old Testament is the triune God. Our God who is slow to anger and abounding in mercy, which we see in the Old Testament, Psalm 103 is the triune God. And our triune God is unchanging. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, he's unchanging. And, and here in the New Testament, and specifically in our text this morning, we see Jesus speaking of God's divine and righteous judgment on those who treat sin in a trivial way, on those who sin and lack repentance and faith on those who cause others to sin or to stumble. And we'll look more at this next week, Lord willing. 
Another why, reason why I think a passage like this is difficult or evidence that it's difficult is because the language used to describe hell is seemingly symbolic. In fact, much of this passage this morning is symbolic. For example, are we to literally cut off our hand? Are we to literally cut off our foot? Are we literally to remove, pluck out our eyes? Looking at some of you this morning, it seems practically speaking that we all agree that this teaching is symbolic, right? But we should work to try and grasp what Jesus is actually teaching. So this morning, let's start with the language that Jesus used to describe hell in our passage and by God's grace get a, a true and a biblical picture of hell so far as it depends upon us. Next week, we're going to examine how we should view sin and repentance based on this teaching of Jesus. But this morning, I want to stick with us defining hell. And so if you're, you're taking notes, that's kind of the first category that we have, defining hell. Okay, the specific term that Jesus uses in our text, and you may be familiar with this, Gehenna. Gehenna is the, 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 the Greek word that is translated as hell, and it occurs 10 times in the gospel, and it occurs one time in the book of James, chapter 3, verse 6 specifically. There's another term that's used, uh, and that term is Hades. Uh, that's also used 10 times in the New Testament. Uh, sometimes this word should be translated as hell, uh, depending on the context, but sometimes that word should be used, uh, should be translated as death, or it should be translated as uh, grave or underworld. For our purposes this morning, I'm going to neglect that particular word, and I'm going to use the word that, that uh, focus on the word that Jesus uses in our text. So first, let's do a survey of how that word is used in other new places, uh, other places in the New Testament. Okay, in, in Matthew chapter five, verse twenty-two, okay, we see the the phrase "hellfire" is what what is translated. It's the English translation, and and the person that is in danger of being cast into hellfire is the individual that calls another image bearer a fool. Okay? You see that, Matthew 5, 22. In verse 29, in that same passage, we see the word used along with similar language from Jesus about removing the eye and the hand, right? The, the, and it has to do with adultery, but not just adultery. It has to do with a sinful looking, a heart adultery, right? Jesus says that the person who does this will be cast into hell. That's what's used, used there, cast into hell. We see later in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus tells the disciples not to fear those who can kill the body, but to fear the one, and he's pointing to the Lord that can destroy both body and soul in hell. All right, Luke records the same thing for us in chapter 12, verse 5 of the Gospel of Luke. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 9, we see the passage that corresponds to our passage this morning. And it's set in the context of the passage that we know to give us instruction about church discipline. Right? Jesus says to cut off uh, the hand or foot or pluck out the eye that causes, he gives the command to do that or to be cast into the hellfire. 
In Matthew chapter 23, verse 15, we see Jesus rebuking the religious leaders, the Pharisees, because they produced the type of disciples that were hell-bound. Jesus literally calls them sons of hell. Later in that same chapter, Jesus calls them a brood of vipers, and he asks them how they will escape the condemnation of hell. We see that in verse 33. James uses the term too, and he uses it to describe an out-of-control tongue, uh, 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 literally a, a tongue that's not in control. It's, it's, uh, a tongue that's not uh, in control is a tongue that's been set on fire by hell, James says in chapter 3, verse 6. In other words, it draws its vocabulary from the fiery pit of hell. And James says that it pollutes the whole body. He calls the out of control tongue a, quote, world of iniquity. And we know that Jesus teaches elsewhere that out of the abundance of the heart, what speaks? The mouth speaks. Matthew 12, 34, right? Your mouth is often a good indicator of where your heart is. A tongue that contains the vocabulary of hell indicates a heart that's hell bound, okay? And, and then we come to Mark, where this word is used three times in our very passage of Scripture, verse 43 and 45 and 47. Augustine, he, he said of this passage that, he said this passage contain, contains terrifying repetition, contains terrifying repetition. And the word Jesus uses to illustrate eternal wrath, hell here, it isn't abstract in Jewish thought, okay? The, the word is a noun that comes from a Hebrew phrase that is translated, that means the valley of Hinnom, the valley of Hinnom, if you're familiar with that in your Old Testament. And this valley, it was a ravine on the southern slope of Jerusalem. We see it mentioned in Joshua chapter 15 and in Joshua chapter 18. But in Old Testament times, it was a place used for offering sacrifices to foreign gods. Okay, so if you're familiar with this valley in the Old Testament, you'd remember it was the place particularly where King Ahaz and King Manasseh sacrificed their sons. Okay, they literally burned their sons to the God. They, they offered them up as a burnt offering, a burnt sacrifice to the gods of Molech and the God of Baal. Okay, so it, it, it was a place of the most wicked of pagan practices. If we gave a modern illustration, and, and this illustration can only be pushed so far, and you'll see why in a minute, but if we were to give a modern illustration, Jesus using a place like an abortion mill could be equivalent to what he is using here in our text to, um, to help uh, uh, Jewish, uh, uh, his, his disciples to, and, and, and those within um, uh, with, uh, uh, Jewish history, Jewish thought, to, to think of the worst place imaginable. But regarding specifically this valley, the Valley of Hinnom, the prophet Jeremiah, we see that he cursed the place in chapter 19 of Jeremiah. Okay, we, and we see King jo Josiah in the midst of his reforms, we see uh, as he was tearing down all of the high places, the places where these idols were worshipped, he especially desecrated this place. And you see that in 2 Kings chapter 23. And this place 
it became a dump where refuse was, was burned. Um, it became a, a, a dump. It became known in the time of Isaiah as the burning place in which the Lord will burn his enemies. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 33. In other words, this wicked place where, where pagans burned their children, where pagans sacrificed their children, right, particularly their sons, the Lord would use that same place to burn them. The Lord would use that same place to judge them. In fact, this is what Jeremiah prophesied uh, that it would become. He called it a valley of slaughter, a valley of slaughter. It would become a place of judgment for pagan worshipers. We see that in Jeremiah chapter 7 and chapter 19 and chapter 32 as well. One commentator says it this way, Hinnom became, became closely associated with death, with corpses, and punishment. It became a fitting image of God judging the wicked. So, Jesus takes what would be associated as this horrific place of suffering in the Jewish mind, and he uses it to illustrate something about the nature of the eternity that God's enemies will face, right? The eternity that people who die without Christ will face. And, and this isn't uncommon in Scripture. In fact, all of Scripture is God using language that we can understand to help us grasp lofty things, right? Things too great for us to grasp. This is one of the reasons, I think, that God inspired human authors to write his message to us so that the message would be written in such a way that we would understand it, right? So what are some conclusions that we can come to about hell from our text and from the imagery that Jesus uses to teach about it. Well, with the imagery in mind, with the Old Testament context in mind, go back to the phrases that are repeated throughout our text this morning. Right? Hell into the fire shall never be quenched, where, quote, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And Jesus is, is quoting Isaiah chapter 66, verse 44 here, right? And, and this is symbolic judgment language that has behind it, again, that imagery of the Valley of Hinnom, right? This, this continuous fire, this worm continually feeding off of the, the flesh of bodies that never decay. Now, should we take these words literally? Well, if we do, right, it's horrific enough, isn't it? But I don't think that's how we should read this text. Instead, here are three conclusions I think we should have as it relates to hell. And I've included this in your notes this morning. First, we know that hell is a place of judgment. Okay, we know that hell is a place of judgment. And I don't want to get ahead of myself because this is going to come up here in a, a few minutes focusing on why it's a place of judgment and what makes it a place of judgment. But we, conclude, we can conclude from the way that Jesus speaks about hell that it's the just judgment of God over sinners that do not find refuge in Christ. I called these sinners enemies a moment ago, and I was strategic to use the word enemies, 
Uh, this morning, if you're not a Christian, do you know that you're not neutral? Your, your, your position before God is not a neutral position. You are God's enemy. If you're not in Christ, you are God's enemy. Paul reminds the church of Colossae of this very thing. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. And this isn't, this isn't the only place where we see this language. But reminding the church of who they once were, he said, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Again, Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 22. Now you're either a son or, da- son or daughter of the Most High God, right? and that's made possible through the Spirit of God applying the person and work of Christ to your life, or you're an enemy of God. That's, that's your only two options. And as an enemy of God, you will face judgment for your rebellion. Now, there's no neutral ground. There's no middle way. Even the person that's laid back, that is seemingly apathetic and breezy about God, he's not, it doesn't seem for him, doesn't seem against him, he's just kind of going through life in this sort of vague way as it relates to his orientation before the Lord. Even that person is in open hostility before God. That person is. Right. That's all I want to say for just a moment, but for, th- for this moment, but judgment and the necessity of it, it will be, it's going it, it, to, we'll see that come into clearer focus as we contemplate either, again, being a son or daughter of the Most High God or being God's enemy. Okay, so the first, we, we can conclude that hell is a place of judgment. Secondly, we can conclude that hell is eternal. Hell is eternal. And there are some theologians and pastors that would take the view that God annihilates the soul of the wicked, that at the end of all things, those not saved by Jesus will be destroyed, that they will cease to exist. But I think that this is problematic for a few reasons. First, it goes against the way that scriptures describe hell to us. As I mentioned earlier, much of what we know about hell is from the teachings of Jesus during his first advent ministry. I think the Lord designed it that way, that Jesus would be the one that we're learning about hell from because of the difficulty and the intensity of hell. And the language that Jesus uses to describe hell, it clues us into it being eternal. Secondly, the Bible is clear that a physical resurrection is coming. Okay, there is a physical resurrection coming, but not just for those who died in Christ Jesus, right? If you call yourself a Christian this morning, you're not the only one rising from the dead when Jesus comes back to undo the effects of the curse, right? Those who perish in their sins will also bodily resurrect. And Jesus gives us a picture of his judgment on that final day. And in that picture, we see everlasting life contrasted with everlasting torment. For instance, and I, I referred this passage to you la- I referred to this passage to you last week, but Jesus speaking to those who are proud in heart, uh, in his great judgment between what the scripture calls goats, who are goats contrasted with in scripture? Sheeps, right? Goats and sheeps, right? The 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 the, the goats being people who profess Jesus but were never truly converted, right? And sheep being people who confess Jesus that really were 
converted. He says this in verse 46 of Matthew chapter 25. And these, speaking of the goats, will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous, okay, the sheep, and again, when we hear righteous, when we hear sheep, you're only made righteous by the grace of God, right? It's not because you're better than someone not in Christ. It's solely the grace of God. But he says, the righteous, the sheep, into eternal life. So the goats into everlasting punishment, the sheep into eternal life. Right? We see according to Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, verse 15. Again, Revelation is a highly symbolic book. But those who died and weren't saved by Jesus are resurrected bodily on the last day, and they're judged according to their own biographies. In other, uh, in other words, those who die and die uh, without Christ are judged according to their own works, the way in which they lived their lives, instead of being judged according to the biography of Jesus, right? His perfect person and work. And what happens when one is resurrected and is judged, stands before um, the judgment seat of God and is judged according to his or her own biography. Well, the text says that they're cast into the lake of fire along with the devil and with demons where they are, quote, tormented day and night forever and ever. We see that in verse 10. So the future resurrection, bodily resurrection, it supports this conclusion. The third reason that we can conclude that hell is eternal is because we know that historically there has been a majority, in fact, a vast majority and firm Christian consensus on hell being uh, the eternal conscious torment. There's things in church history that don't have near as much consensus as hell being uh, the, this eternal conscious torment. And this gets me to the last thing that we can conclude about hell. Okay, so the first thing is that hell is a place of judgment. The second thing is that hell is eternal. And third thing that we can conclude is that hell is worse than we can possibly imagine. Hell is worse than we can possibly imagine. In our text, it says that it's better to be maimed. We'll think through this more next Sunday, Lord willing, but it's better to cut cut off your hands or cut off your feet or gouge out your eye than for your whole person, right, a whole body person to be cast into hell and eternal fire. We don't know truly what hell is like. Is it a literal fire? Is there a literal worm that never dies feeding on the flesh that will never see decay? I don't know. We're probably not. But what we do know is that it's terrible. It's a terrible, awful place. It's the place of weeping. It's the place of horrific, unending sorrow and uncontrollable, unending horror. It's a place of gnashing of teeth, this, this deep anguish and anger and pain. So the language that's used to describe hell and Jesus seeking to use hellish places on earth to help illustrate hell should instruct us to recognize and to confess that there is an eternal existence that one can inhabit that is worse than we could possibly imagine. It's worse than the images given by Jesus. 
Jonathan Edwards, that theologian, philosopher, pastor, he thought and preached perhaps more extensively than most on this subject. And he said this, wicked men will hereafter earnestly wish to be turned to nothing and forever cease to be so that they may escape the wrath of God. So what is hell? It's a place of judgment. It's a place of eternal judgment. And it's a worse judgment than we can possibly imagine. I, I think that those conclusions are biblical. I think that these conclusions are representative of the Christian consensus, but what I want to do with the time we have left this morning is I want to use this extended reflection on hell this morning and next Sunday and ask the question, what can hell teach us? Okay, what can hell teach us? And if you're taking notes, this is the next thing I'd have you write down. Hell teaches us of God's holiness and goodness. Hell teaches us of God's holiness and goodness. And this is what we're going to spend the remainder of our time on this morning thinking through. And this is what is implicit in our text this morning. Okay, God incarnate is speaking. Jesus is speaking, the teaching of Jesus, right? The Holy Spirit is the divine author of the words of Scripture. Right? But we don't see God mentioned in this text except as it's related to the, quote, kingdom of God. But the reason that I say God's holiness and goodness is implicit is because of our three conclusions about hell. It's because our text speaks of a coming eternal judgment over sin worse than we can possibly imagine. And this is where I want to revisit hell being this place of judgment that I, I mentioned earlier. Okay, the, the triune God is holy. Right? He is the high and lofty one whose very name is holy, Isaiah 57, 15. He's the one whom the seraphim, right, these unfallen angelic creatures, right, seeing as they cover their eyes, as they cover their feet, as they fly around the throne room of God, they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of what? His glory, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. And that word holy, it denotes singled out or separate or other. It speaks, in other words, to the, 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 um, the otherness, if you will, of God. I think about it this way. There is God, and then there's everything that's not God, okay, which is creation. Okay, there's God, and then there's everything that's not God, which is creation. And only the triune God, only the creator is holy, Right? Only the triune God is pure, unstained by sin. Only the triune God is perfect. And his perfections are revealed to us where? In his law. And I mentioned this when we were spending time confessing the ninth commandment. Right? We see his character revealed to us more through the law. Through the law of God. So in this way, the law of God is a revealer. Right, revealing the holiness of God and our, our lack thereof. Right, we aren't holy in comparison. Right, maybe we like to compare ourselves to one another and think, "Man, I'm doing better than this guy." Right? But when we compare ourselves to our Creator, who is holy, we're not doing so well. Right? We see the repeated command in Scripture not to be holy as one another is holy, 
be holy for I am holy, which is referring to who? God. See that in Exodus and Leviticus. We see it mentioned again in 1 Peter. In this command and the law of God revealed to us, it demonstrates what being holy is. And it's an unchanging standard. And it's unchanging because our God who's holy is unchanging. So God, he doesn't compromise this standard in dealing with sinful humanity because God will not, God cannot compromise his character, right? Wickedness, sin, it has to be punished. Cosmic justice requires it. On a much lesser level, to illustrate this further for us, when we experience injustice, okay, or when we see people get away with something, this side of eternity, okay? Or when we see unequal weights and measurements applied, something swells up inside of us that says, that's not right. Didn't that happen with you guys? Right? We see injustice in the world and we say, that's not right. The way that individual was treated, that's not right. The person that got away with it, that's not right. right? We are constantly reminded of those types of things. How much more, though, if the cosmic judge of the world ignored sin? How much worse would that be? He'd be arbitrary. He'd be unjust. He'd be untrustworthy. There'd be no promise of his to which we could cling to. He certainly wouldn't be holy, and he wouldn't be good. Speaking of God's goodness, think about that for a moment. I'm going to talk about this more next week, but how does the Bible describe us? I'm going to define God's goodness first by describing how the Bible speaks about us. Right? Paul, quoting the psalmist, he says in Romans 3, and he's quoting Psalm 14, there is none good. Right? Some translations say righteous. There's none righteous. No, not one. Right? Jesus asks the leading question to the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, and we'll see this in a few weeks. Right? Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. So God alone right, is good, can deduce. God alone is holy. Now, how does hell teach us all this? Right? As we contemplate this eternal terror called hell, right, we should see there the expression of God's holiness and his goodness against sinful man. And that's a terrifying thing to contemplate. Right? Everything we just worked through regarding the law is assumed by Jesus as he's giving this teaching on sin and on justice. And we know that God's law reveals to us something about the character of God. Again, that he's holy and that he alone is good. And it reveals something about us, that we are not holy and that we are not good. In fact, we're incapable of being good. We're incapable of being holy like our creator. In fact, the New Testament refers to us in our unregenerate state and in the state of not being a Christian, we are referred to as children of wrath. Children of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Now here's an important question for us. How is God's holiness and his goodness experienced for the person who does not have his sins forgiven, that dies without having his sins forgiven? 
it's experienced as wrath. To be more precise, it's experienced as divine wrath. There's this teaching, I don't know where it began, that puts forward an image of hell as the absence of God's presence. That's not true. That's not true. Our God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. There's no place that we can go from the presence of God. Quote, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. Psalm 139, 7 to 8. Hey, what makes heaven heaven is the presence of God experienced in Jesus Christ, experienced as one that's forgiven. What makes hell hell is the presence of God experienced out of Jesus Christ, and this is an eternal torment. The presence of God is a torment for God's enemies. The holiness and goodness of God experienced apart from Jesus is an eternal misery. Going back to the late R.C. Sproul, he says it this way. A breath of relief is usually heard when someone declares hell is a symbol for separation from God. To be separated from God for eternity is no great threat to the impenitent person. And by impenitent, impenitent kids, it means the one who doesn't have shame or regret for what they've done. Right? In other words, they didn't want God all their lives and they're happy not to have God in eternity, okay? The scroll goes on. The ungodly want nothing more than to be separated from God. Their problem in hell will not be separation from God. It will be the presence of God that torments them. In hell, God will be present in the fullness of his divine wrath. He will be there to exercise his just punishment of the damned. They will know him as an all-consuming fire. Listen, if your concept of hell is that the devil's down there torturing everyone, not a biblical picture of hell. The devil will experience the divine wrath of God for all eternity in hell, along with demons, along with those that die outside of Jesus Christ. I've wrestled with how to conclude this part of my sermon because it's important for us to, to feel the weight of the reality of hell. Right? It's uncomfortable, though, to think about, isn't it? Right? It's uncomfortable for me to preach about, to spend this week and next week preaching about it but it's inescapably biblical. It's inescapably biblical. And I want us to slow down and consider it. I don't want to break the ninth commandment and bear false witness about it. Hell's a place of judgment. And that judgment is God's holiness and his goodness experienced outside of Jesus, which means, again, that it's a place of God's divine wrath. That would be a terrible thing to face for even a day, wouldn't it? But for those who perish without Jesus, they're not going to face it for a day. They're going to face it for eternity. And it's far worse than we can ever imagine this side of eternity. So if you're here this morning and you're not in Jesus Christ, you haven't been saved by Christ, if you've not placed your faith in him, if you haven't repented of your sin, you're not in a neutral place this morning. You are by nature a child 
of wrath. You're an enemy of God, and you will meet your maker. So here's my encouragement to you this morning. Flee to Christ. Flee to Christ. He alone is the path of peace with God. Right? He alone is the path of having your sins forgiven. He alone is the path of reconciliation. And myself or an elder would love to talk about this more with you. So speak to one of us after the service this morning. We would love to talk more about the gospel of Jesus Christ with you. For those of us that are Christians this morning, the doctrine of hell should shape our prayers as we think about those in our lives who do not know Jesus. God is sovereign over our salvation, absolutely, but he's also sovereign over the means by which men, women, and children are saved. God really uses your prayers. So fervently pray for those in your life that don't know Jesus. Pray that the Lord might save them. And if you're given an opportunity, open your mouth and share the gospel, the good news with them. And for all of us, may our reflection of hell drive us nearer to the cross. And it's there that we're going to turn now as we go to the Lord's Supper. But let me pray first. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, this is a a weighty subject. And God, I pray for the person that doesn't know you that you would this morning save them. For the Christian, God, I do ask you would help this doctrine to shape our prayers. And God, that even more would increase our gratitude for Christ who went to the cross and experienced divine wrath. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the poor...